Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Mike Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 346th edition of Talk Dan Tuesday. Today's broadcast is presented by the American Health Information Management Association, AHIMA, as we know them. And joining me this morning is my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD, Incorporated. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about the apparent conflict between the ICD-10 official guidelines and the coding clinic. The guidelines and the coding clinic seem to disagree on reporting BMI. Standing by to offer advice is nationally recognized CDI authority, Dr. James Kennedy. That's right. This issue surfaced during our Talk to Tuesday broadcast last Tuesday. Linda, a loyal listener, raised the issue, and today Dr. Kennedy will lay down some very important advice for coders. And speaking of coders, Rose Dunn reports on ICD-11, its complexity and granularity. Looking forward to Rose's report. There's a developing story that we're monitoring, and it's telemedicine. Terry Fletcher will report today on where ICD-10 and CPT fit into this virtual delivery of medicine. And it's flu season, and Lori Johnson will report on what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are recommending for patients six years and older. Yep, it's time to get a flu shot. Ouch. Ouch. We have much news to report during this broadcast, and we begin this morning with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to attend an important webcast on CPT and ICD-10 coding for foot and ankle trauma. It's tomorrow at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is Tim Powell. Good morning, Chuck, and... Indeed, the Medicare Advantage proposed rules look like potentially good news for particularly rural hospitals. Uh, CMS has put forward proposed rules to make changes to Medicare Advantage. On the positive side, it expands telehealth access for patients. This will help struggling rural providers get paid for telehealth services, as telehealth services will now be covered under, under Medicare Advantage plans. Now, for those who are not familiar with telehealth services, If you live in some rural areas, Medicare covers these services under certain conditions only if you're located at one of the following places, a doctor's office, a hospital, a critical access hospital, a rural health clinic, a federally qualified health center, a hospital-based critical access hospital, a skilled nursing facility, or a community mental health center. So if you're thinking about telemedicine in terms of someone uh, calling up in order to get telehealth services, that's not really the way it works. And why it's helpful for rural hospitals is it means that folks that come into a rural hospital are going to be able to have services covered under Medicare Advantages, uh, when, Medicare Advantage when they get additional services at the hospital for specialists and other services. So this is actually good news for our struggling rural access hospitals. On the negative side, it gives greater power to CMS to impose reductions in payments to Medicare Advantage plans based on risk adjustment data validation. Now, these adjustments filter down to the providers, including hospitals. Medicare Advantage plans are paid a per-member, per-month risk-adjusted base payment. Payments to plans receive regular adjustments as claims update are paid and update their rates. Risk adjustments are computed based on something called the hierarchical condition codes, or HCCs. 
HUCs are derived from ICD DEN codes based on claims data. An ICD DEN, an ICD code maps directly to one HCC, but not all ICD codes map to an HCC. Approximately 10,000 ICD DEN codes map to an HCC. This is just 14% of the total uh, diagnosis codes. The CMS HCC model focuses on chronic health conditions likely to affect long-term health expenditures and purposely excludes non-diagnosis codes. So how does this affect hospitals? As CMS looks at the risk adjustment and modifies the, the coding, it can roll forward to the, uh, to the actual claim. So Medicare CMS is looking to uh, reduce the risk score. In turn, the Medicare Advantage plans are going to reduce the amount that they pay to the individual providers and hospitals and even potentially open issues with uh, things like the False Claims Act or the submission of claims. So there's positive things and negative things in the uh, proposed rules based on uh, what's going on with Medicare Advantage. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's October 30th. It's a day of mourning for victims in Saturday's synagogue massacre in Squirrel Hill, Pennsylvania. This is Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Whether you're just starting out the journey or well along the path of a successful health information management professional career, AHIMA certification is your guide to career enhancement, increased salary, and greater success. AHIMA's industry-regarded coding credentials put you in a special league and position you as a leader and role model in the health information community. Investing in AHIMA certification is an investment in yourself and your long-term career. There's no better time than now to make career moves. Visit ahima.org certification to learn more about where AHIMA credentials can take you. We're in the middle of the 2018 flu season, although the CDC reports that the flu activity is going to peak between December and February. Here now with our CDC report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck and Erica, and hello to our listeners. The Center for Disease Control maintains a map which shows the influenza activity by state. Currently, the highest level reported is low, which is in Georgia and Puerto Rico. Other states that are reporting some activity include Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Alabama, Louisiana, Arizona, Colorado, Wisconsin, and Hawaii, and that level is actually minimal. With the exception of Georgia and Puerto Rico, all states fall in minimal activity. There are four states reporting no influenza activity, and those include Illinois, Mississippi, Rhode Island, and Virginia. The National Center of Health Statistics reports that there were four deaths due to influenza in the week ending October 13th, while there were 10 reported deaths in the previous week. So today I had written an article about the five W's with regards to influenza and vaccination. So the five W's are who should get vaccinated, and they include children aged six months and older. And children from the age of six months to eight years may need to get a two-dose immunization to be fully immunized. What Types of influenza is predicted for this year, H1N1, H3N2, 
And B, um, it's virus B in Colorado is also another name for that. Where should you get immunized? It could be a doctor's office, the pharmacy, there's free clinics, and the public health office in your area will also do vaccinations. When should you be vaccinated? And this is really important because the the Center for Disease Control recommends that everyone be vaccinated by the end of October, and today is October 30th. And you'll need two weeks to for the for that immunization to fully take effect. And why should you be vaccinated? You want to avoid hospitalization, death, ultimately, potentially, and using your paid time off for feeling bad. Remember, Z23 is the ICD-10 code for immunization. And the ICD-10 codes for influenza will vary based on the type of influenza and the patient's manifestations. A physician query template could be developed based on the type of influenza and the various manifestations, including enteritis, gastroenteritis, encephalopathy, myocarditis, laryngitis, pharyngitis, otitis media, pneumonia, or other. And I'm very happy to be among the vaccinated this year. And on another piece of good news, um, Marty Griffin, who I had written an article a couple weeks ago, has completed his seven weeks of cancer therapy and will be back on the air in KDKA Pittsburgh next week. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant with Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori, thank you very much. And you can read Lori's reporting on the flu season in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. We continue to monitor the developments of ICD-11, although it's going to be years before the U.S. adopts the new code set. Nonetheless, there's a lot of interest in ICD-11. For some random thoughts on the subject of ICD-11, is Rose Duncan. Morning, Rose. Well, good morning. When Chuck asked me to submit a brief article for Talk 10's readers, I was already digging into ICD-11 and attempting to understand its relationship to SNOMED CT. And my article is available on the Talk 10 website. The World Health Organization's ICD-11 is definitely different than ICD-10. It is structured similar to a database and has multiple dimensions. ICD-11 is designed to be fully compatible with electronic health records, with multiple medical vocabularies and terminologies, and, of course, with SNOMED CT. It will take the artificial intelligence and some computer-assisted coding applications to a totally new level. The granularity of an ICD-11 code addresses many more facets of the conditions, its etiologies, and severity than ICD-10 ever did. Some of the dimensions include simultaneous foundational characteristics of a condition, for example, tuberculosis being both an infection and lung respiratory disease, and this is called parents. There's cluster coding, that is a coding convention that allows more than one code to be used to describe components of the condition, such as its manifestations and causal agents, through the use of a slash or an and sign. 
And then there's socioeconomic or social determinant-related causes of conditions that will link health conditions to education, nutrition, and our public infrastructure. The virgin version of ICD-11 has about three and a half times as many codes as the virgin version of ICD-10. But just like ICD-10, it's limited to conditions or diagnoses, so we'll still have PCS. All of those who love PCS, you'll continue loving it. However, we should anticipate that our specialty societies will add even more codes to create a clinically modified version of ICD-11 for the United States because you all know we're very special here in the United States. Some of the code characteristics that we learned will be different. The first character of the diagnosis code is not always a letter. The second character of the code will never be a number. The third character of the code will always be a number. And there's four characters before the decimal point. ICD-11 has new chapters on traditional medicine and sexual health, and there are more chapters than in ICD-10. In electronic health records today, SNOMED CT is assigning a code based on the relationships of a base condition or concept to other factors found in the digital documentation from the caregiving team and the results from clinical testing through LOINC. SNOMED CT accommodates and integrates with ICD-11 and vice versa. So for U.S. coding, it means that a transition in the role of the coding professional must happen. Electronic health records have penetrated the hospital and physician office markets and EHRs are present in other settings, so the remnants of SNOMED CT will be in those as well. Our coding professionals will need to thoroughly understand SNOMED to be able to assess whether the codes being signed are correct, especially if SNOMED will be pushing out ICD-11 codes. And if that's not the case, the additional granularity in ICD-11 will lead to a greater emphasis on documentation improvement because we'll be able to fully describe conditions surrounding and contributing to patient diagnosis because even unsafe workflows in our healthcare organizations will be able to be described in ICD-11. So I encourage all of you listening today to start your ICD-11 education now, even if it's superficial at first. Doing so will allow you and your team to forecast how this new classification system could impact your organization, the technology choices being made, and the skill sets that you're team needs to develop. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the Chief Operations Officer at First Class Solutions. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, very much. And Rose, thank you. And you can read Rose Dunn's fascinating article on ICD-11. It's in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Our Tuesday focus is telemedicine. It's a developing story that we're monitoring. And Terry Fletcher is here to report on where ICD-10 and CPT fit into this unique virtual delivery of medicine. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. As Chuck said, telemedicine is a hot topic in our healthcare industry as of late and our topic of the day. Hospitals, doctors, and other healthcare providers seeking an edge in today's highly competitive healthcare environment would do well to consider smart telehealth strategy. It's not really an option anymore to think telemedicine doesn't fit into your practices. It's a delivery of medicine that many physicians and providers across the world have bought into. The industry of telemedicine is at a tipping point, though, expanding far beyond interactions between physicians and patients into entirely new ways to deliver healthcare and practice medicine. Direct-to-consumer encompasses many of the products and services that have dominated telemedicine to date. Telehealth may increase access by making care more convenient for certain patients, but it also may increase utilization and healthcare spending, which is where work needs to be done. 
It starts with taking an inventory of the pain points you want to solve for in your practices. Telehealth is an extremely broad category. It encompasses everything from managing complex, high-risk conditions like stroke through remote monitoring and consultation to providing high-quality, on-demand convenience care or virtual care for a range of acute, episodic, and non-emergent conditions in an effective, rapid, and cost-effective manner. This could include options such as self-triage, nurse advice, asynchronous virtual care for common ambulatory conditions, so a frequent UTI patient recurrence, pink eye, simple injuries, and behavioral health issues. In-person visits would be reserved for conditions where multiple comorbidities exist, diabetes, influenza, for example, or when a uh, physical procedure is required, such as a cancerous lesion removal. But the reality is you still need to find value in the delivery of this this new delivery of medicine. It's estimated that telehealth is an $18 billion industry with significant growth projected. To be safe and effective for patients, telemedicine needs to adhere to a few core principles. First, licensure. The practice of medicine occurs where the patient is receiving treatment, not where the physician is located. Adherence to established standards of care. The standard of care for telemedicine is the same as for in-person care. And payment, a medically necessary and covered service, should be paid for regardless of how it's provided. But even under the new state laws, payment remains a stumbling block as health plans argue that telemedicine is a service rather than a mode of delivering a service that is already covered. Some of the most recent specialties that have proactively added telemedicine to their medical practices would be end-stage renal services, psychiatric diagnostic evaluations, diabetes outpatient self-management, chronic care management, just to name a few. For the most part, telehealth interaction between patient and physician can be beneficial. However, one ongoing sticking point is the issuance of prescription medication to a previously unknown person who the doctor has never examined and for which the doctor has no access to the medical record, although that is changing. But for me, the word telehealth, it means video component. Typically, during a telemedicine visit, the patient is seen by a provider via video conferencing. These often occur when a patient is in an underserved rural community and the specialist is in a large urban area. If deemed to be a more serious health concern, again, the patient is told to make an appointment. Providers must keep in mind, however, that not everyone has payment coverage, and there are strict government rules for billing these services, as we also heard previously. For Medicare, by billing claims with place of service O2, the provider is certifying that both the broad and code-specific telehealth requirements have been met. That includes the statutory requirement for telehealth service coverages under Medicare and Medicaid, meaning rural area, originating site, interactive audio and video telecommunication system. If a provider delivers a telehealth service while a Medicare patient is located at home, the service would not meet the Medicare statutory requirements and the provider should not put the uh, place of service O2 on that. False or erroneous codes, a coding of claims can expose you to audits for overpayments and potential liability under the False Claim Act. Medicare has, however, proposed expansion of telehealth services going into 2019 and on into 2020. Medicare, uh, for commercial payers, each contract has their own set of rules for payment, and we recommend that you review those contracts for specific instructions. Many of these services are self-pay. When we get into ICD-10 guidelines, they're specific to accuracy and current details, so the virtual visit concept has a lot of work to do to ensure those accuracies are and the integrity of the visit is the same as in-person as an in-person visit would be. Also, the rapid growth of telehealth has caught the attention of the HHS Office of Inspector General, which recently announced two projects um, to audit the billing of telehealth services. 
Under the first project, OIG will review Medicare claims paid for telehealth services at distant sites that do not have corresponding claims from originating sites and whether to make sure that these have met the Medicare requirements. The big deal is the fact that a lot of patients or in a lot of practices think it's just a phone call and that's not what it is. Under the second project, OIG will determine whether Medicare uh, state, whether states' uh, Medicaid payments for services were allowed in accordance with Medicare requirements. In general, responses from providers in telemedicine industry was overwhelmingly positive. The bottom line is telehealth and telemedicine as a delivery of existing medical services are continually integrating themselves into the healthcare community as technology advances. All payers are seeing a significant increase in claims for these services, and we expect this trend to only continue. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Terry. I used to practice telemedicine by FaceTime when I was a camp doctor. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician, coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. Thanks very much, Terry. And you can read Terry's excellent reporting on telemedicine in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitory News. This morning, our lead story is about the apparent conflict between the ICD-10 official guidelines and the coding clinic. The guidelines and the coding clinic disagree on reporting BMI. Now, this issue surfaced during our Tech 10 Tuesday broadcast last Tuesday. Linda, a loyal listener, raised the issue. And today, Dr. James Kennedy will lay down some very important advice for coders. Good morning, Dr. Kennedy. Well, good morning, everybody. Hope everybody's doing well. This is Dr. Jim Kennedy. Just want to emphasize to everybody that if you haven't read the fourth quarter coding clinic 2018 you got to get it it's absolutely essential in in understanding not only the new codes that have just come out but some very important information regarding the authority of coding clinic and the use of body mass index so let's talk about the authority of coding clinic first coding clinic is has been around for a while. It's been around publishing since 1983, about the time DRGs came out. And Coding Clinic is a cooperative effort between the four cooperating parties, which includes the CDC National Centers for Health Statistics, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the American Hospital Association, and the American Health Information Management Association. Both of these, all four of these individuals, all four of these entities get together and collaborate in writing the advice for coding clinic, which therefore, particularly since CMS is involved, you can take what's written in the coding clinic as being the voice of CMS. And as you know, CMS is partnered with the OIG and all the various uh, compliance entities and you need to be able to read it, and you should be paying attention to what they say. Now, there's a number of people that say, well, coding clinic is only advice. It's not, it's not law. Well, a good lawyer knows the law. The better lawyer knows the law, the judge, and the jury. Coding clinic is, again, the voice of the cooperating parties. And as such, is it has the voice of law and therefore should be part of any denials management, particularly if payers want to have policies that differ from what Coding Clinic uh, may write. You can argue that this is part of HIPAA, uh, just like the guidelines are part of HIPAA, and you should be following it. 
Now, there may be some people that say, well, coding clinic only applies to coders. It doesn't apply to physicians. It doesn't apply to CDI specialists. El Rongo. We have, we have seen time and time again that clinical documentation specialists are advocates of coding. And to ignore the coding clinic advice violates the, the AHIMA standards of ethical coding and as such, we should pay attention to this. Now, where does coding clinic fall in if there's a conflict uh, with what the advice may be in the index, the table, or the guidelines? Coding clinic is, in fact, very, very clear. If the index points to one thing, or if the conventions point to one thing, uh, the index, the table, and the guidelines, then those supersede uh, what coding clinic may write. Because even though they make a best effort to address what's in the index, the table, and the guidelines, they may make a whoops, you know, every now and then. There is one important exception, however, and they make it very clear in this advice, such that if the index points to a condition in the table that cannot be clinically supported, such as emaciation, you know, uh, goes to nutritional marasmus, then further research must be done in order to come up with a clinically congruent code. The fourth quarter coding clinic makes it very clear that this is, that, uh, that further research is necessary, which invariably, how do we do that research? Not stated. My advice is to look at coding clinic fourth quarter 2018, oh, excuse me, fourth quarter, uh, coding, quarter, coding clinic fourth quarter 2017, page 110, tells you exactly how to do that research. Because invariably, we will have to negotiate with the physician a different terminology that then supports the documentation in the record that leads to the code. So how does this go with BMI? Well, again, I encourage all of us to read the Coding Clinic fourth quarter, 2018, pages 77 to 83. Multiple, multiple scenarios whereby uh, certain conditions such as morbid obesity and obesity are considered to be chronic systemic conditions and that with a BMI, can be coded, the BMI can be coded with those conditions. On the other hand, in pregnancy, pregnancy we cannot report a BMI. However, the definition of morbid obesity and obesity and overweight is established at the time that mom gets pregnant. So if mom has a BMI of 40 or more at the time of or whatever the doctor uses to define morbid obesity at the time of conception, then it is legitimate to continue that diagnosis throughout the pregnancy. However, the doctor still has to document morbid obesity, obesity, and the like. And as such, uh, report that in, uh, that can then be coded. Morbid obesity, as we know, is a predictor of is a predictor of poor outcomes in pregnant patients and does influence the APR DRG and the MS DRG as a C, well, uh, 
take that back on the MS. It does it does approach uh, affect the APR DRG and moves it from an SOI one to an SOI two, and thus should be considered uh, throughout. There's multiple, multiple issues that are hard to uh, handle, and I thank you so much for the privilege of chatting with you today. Thank you, Jim, and a very happy birthday to you. That was my friend, Dr. James Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy is the founder and president of CDIMD, Physicians Champion. But I think we have time to answer a couple of questions. The first question we're going to answer is for Tony. She wants to know where one can obtain the coding clinic, and you have to go to the AHA uh, and order it. But most of the hospitals usually have it in their arsenal, so you should just check with your um, coders because you very well may have access through your hospital. Codingclinicadvisor.com is a great place to get access to the coding clinic uh, yes, it's in encoders, and let me encourage everybody, if you have a problem with advice in coding clinic, please submit your request through codingclinicadvisor.com and submit a de-identified medical record. So that way, coding clinic can actually react to what you're saying and fix some advice in the coding clinic that may not make sense. I strongly would like to reiterate what Jim just said about asking questions because we do have the power to help guide the coding. The next question I'd like to answer is Ron Hirsch asked, uh, is there an ICD-10 code for refusal of recommended vaccination? And for this, I would refer everyone to look at the Z28 series. And there's multiple ones, including that the immunization was not carried out because of acute or chronic illness, if the patient is immunocompromised or if they're allergic. And then one of the ones that piqued his interest was because of patient decision for reasons of belief or group pressure. There's also immunization not carried out because of patient refusal or caregiver refusal. So if a parent refuses to give it to their um, child for some other reason, I guess or unavailability of vaccines. So the shingles vaccine right now is a Z28.83. I can tell you that. It's really hard to get um, shingrix right now. Anyway, Chuck, I think that's all the time we have, and uh, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks very much. That is going to be a wrap for our 346th edition of Tucked Into Z and Erica. I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, Terry Fletcher, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, and our special guests, Dr. James Kennedy. Happy birthday, Dr. Kennedy. And a reminder, every day can be Tuesday when you listen to Tucked In Tuesday on demand, anytime, anywhere, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Hope you're going to be with us next Tuesday for another live edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Tucked In Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a great day, everybody. Tucked In Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.